You know, it's possible, and I'm going to start maybe at what seems like a bit of an odd place for this conversation. It is possible to read and at times interpret specific verses in the Bible uh, to formulate a theology of what I would call excess, uh, that God's desire for us is that we would enjoy abundance, Um, But at times, thinking about that abundance based on an earthly understanding of abundance. Christians at times may look at verses like Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It's a verse that says that God's plan is not to harm you, but it is to prosper you that God's desire is to give you a hope and a future. And I think at times people may look at this verse and potentially really like especially the word prosper. That the Lord's desire for you is that you would prosper. And I think that's another fair question about when you think about that or when you read that. What does that actually mean to you? I think when we read the word of God and we look at what we may call promises of God, we have to be a little bit careful in simply reading something and then claiming it as a promise that God has directly given to us. That there are promises in the Bible that God gave to specific people at specific times in their life. Uh, There were many promises that God gave to the children of Israel in the Old Testament that were given to that nation. And so I think we always have to be a little bit careful um, when we come across a verse that sort of sounds like a promise and say, oh, I will grab that, that's for me. I'm not saying it's not possible that God wants to speak to you through that verse. The Bible is also full of promises that I would say are universal, that are meant for all of us all the time to hang on to. But when I was thinking about that verse, that God's plan is not to harm you, but to prosper you. God's plan for you is to give you a hope and to give you a future. I actually think there is a way in which we can actually grab onto that verse. But I think we need to grab onto it with a what I would call New Covenant, New Testament perspective. For the children of Israel, A journey to the promised land was also a journey to a land that was promised to flow with milk and honey. That I think within the context of their nation, that a sense of prosperity was actually in that promise. I think for us that as we read that, or if we want to grab that and hang on to it, If you were to ask the question, do we 
still have a hope, we would say yes, and that hope is in Jesus. Do we have a future? And we would say yes, that future is in Jesus. Are we called to prosper? And I would say yes. That in Jesus you will find not only life, but Jesus says life to the full. But it's thinking a bit differently than physical needs. I think give us this daily bread is, um, is a way of having us give this some perspective. And I think it's interesting if, in fact, all I knew that I had was the daily bread I needed for that day, would I be okay? Or would I grumble? Or would I complain? More than a century ago, speaking to the then largest congregation in all Christendom, Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe that it is anti-Christian and unholy for any Christian to live with the object of accumulating wealth. And then it says, but what I said was that to live with the object. You might say that's the desire of your heart. He said that is anti-Christian. Now it's interesting, there are many Christians who actually have been blessed with wealth. There are many Christians who have not been blessed with wealth. And really Charles Spurgeon says it's not so much about that, in fact it's not about that at all, it's about whether in fact the kingdom of heaven is your ultimate desire. In an article written by David Jones, I do not necessarily know this man, but I want to give him credit because he said this in an article um, posted on a Bible.org. He said, over the years, however, the message being preached in some of the largest churches in the world, I would say this is true within a North American context. It is certainly true within the context of Africa that the world has changed, I mean, that the message has being preached has changed. A new gospel is being taught to many congregations today. This message has been ascribed many names, and then he goes on to list a bunch of kind of names. But he says, no matter what name is used, the essence of this message is the same. Simply put, this prosperity gospel teaches that God wants believers to be physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy. Um, I think the first two are simply false. The third one, personally happy, I think if you were to take happy out and put in the word content, I would say actually then I would believe that also to be true. But the desire of God is not necessarily that we are always healthy. The desire of God is not that we are or will become wealthy. It's a false gospel because it's, I'm going to say it spiritualizes both prosperity and it spiritualizes poverty. 
that if you are blessed materially, for some reason, God is pleased with you. So keep on doing whatever you're doing. If you are in poverty, there is something not quite right. Perhaps you don't have enough faith. But it spiritualizes things that I actually don't think Jesus taught about. If anything, he taught against that perspective of our call to follow Jesus. But the prosperity gospel is tempting. Because in a very real way, it legitimizes everything the world strives after. And it implies that our Father's desire is to either hand out or to withhold earthly rewards. And it silences the voice that would call us to reflect on the desires of God's heart. And it silences that voice that would actually say, you need to actually change your desires and put them in line with the desires of God for you. The gospel is about hope. The hope is actually truly an anchor for our souls. The Bible is about a future that there is coming for every one of us who perseveres, a reward that is incredible. And I believe the gospel is about abundance. That we would truly learn to find contentment and experience the abundance of Jesus. And so in this prayer, give us this day, not excess, it is in a way such a limited prayer, give us today our daily bread. And in a way, it's a challenge to us to keep our eyes to keep our hearts, to keep our hope fixed on our provider and not on the provision. It's a prayer that recognizes our physical and our material needs. It's a request for, you might say, the basics of life. Food, shelter, clothing, I think you could put job in there. And the New Testament would say, Jesus says that God actually knows that we need these things. But this prayer is not a request for excess. This prayer is certainly not a guarantee of prosperity. Prayer really says, help me be content this day with what you will provide. And one thing that will always be there is the presence of Jesus. In an agrarian culture, and many of, I don't know, your family a few decades ago uh, were tied to the land in ways that many of us, if not most of us, 
don't really understand anymore. But in an agrarian culture, food was dependent on the harvest. Harvest generally, I think, as it probably still is, unless you're in a greenhouse, harvest is dependent on good weather. And good weather rests in the hand of God, not in the hand of man. That nature doesn't somehow sustain itself, God does. When I look in my own family's history, the prayer, give us this day, our daily bread, was often a prayer of necessity. Utter dependence on God, and there are many stories within our family's history, and maybe in yours, a dependency on God was often expressed in the generosity of somebody else. Uh, I was at the coast, or we were, uh, last Sunday after church, we went to Chilliwack, and I saw on the dining room table in, in my uh, mom's home some old photographs. And I was kind of fascinated by them, especially one of them. Um, it was a photograph of all nine children. And they were obviously arranged by the photographer, so they went from oldest to youngest, and so it was an interesting picture. And behind them was this nondescript, tiny little house, just kind of in the middle of the prairie. And I found myself looking at these nine children and I looked at the house, and I thought, how in the world do 11 people figure that out? And my mom, who was kind of watching and looking at them with me, she said to me, Doug, we were so poor. And I looked at the clothing. About half of them had kind of some kind of footwear the other half were barefoot. Now, it could, it could be that they had shoes someplace and just chose to be barefoot. I don't know. And yet, in each of their hands, they were holding a, a giant slice of watermelon. But I thought, you know, for those people, the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, was part of every day, and it was part of actually survival. And today, I think even in our country to some extent, and likely even in Lake Country, there are those for whom this prayer comes from a real place of need. That our country, in a very strange way, Although we would say we have advanced, we have progressed, we are making progress in whatever it means to make progress, and we have a whole, probably generation of people who have actually grown up with the food bank. 
in a way, it's a bit of a sad commentary about such a progressive society. So there are people around us for whom this prayer is a genuine prayer of God. Give us this day our daily bread. For most of us, I'm going to say daily bread is not a concern. In fact, I would say I would plead guilty to very often taking it for granted. Every morning, the burning question in our homes is not, will we have enough to eat? It will be more like, what will we make for supper? Or, whose turn is it to make supper? Or, who will buy the groceries? Or, should we just order in? To a very real extent, that kind of is how we live. We actually grumble, maybe not always, but if we are expected to eat leftovers for more than a day, let's say, we would say, okay, not again. Unless it maybe it would be Kate Workington's soup. I think I could probably eat that for an entire week and still be really happy. We expect, actually, to be fed, I'm going to say, from a menu of excess. And I believe, in fact, if all we had was what we needed for this day, we would probably either worry, we might complain, we might stress out, or we would learn to trust God in a completely different way. And we would find God to be faithful. So we might say, in our abundance, can we kind of just ignore this line then? Give us to stay our daily bread. Can we say, well, you know what? We've got more than we need. Let's just move on to the next line that says, forgive us. But I think we still need to pray this prayer. And I want to give four quick reasons why. Number one. This prayer acknowledges that our Father is our provider. He holds the world in place. He has determined the seasons. He is the giver of life, and he is the giver of everything we need to sustain life. So we need to acknowledge God as our provider. Number two. I think this prayer, especially here in Canada, should cause us to overflow with thankfulness. That God, for some reason, you've given us more than we need when it comes to our physical daily bread. Number three, this prayer should create in us, especially in the children of God, a mindset of generosity. God, give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear what you might have me do with my extra bread. I've got more than I need. And this prayer does not say, give me my daily bread. It says, give it to us. And I know in, in, in our family's history, there are stories about how, in, you might say, almost miraculous ways, Neighbors, friends, people in the church helped people who quite literally did not have enough 
daily bread. So I think we need to ask that question. God, what do you have me do with all this? And number four, this is a prayer for sustenance, not a prayer for prosperity. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. There were 40 years where give us this day our daily bread was answered in a miraculous way. Exodus chapter 16. And it's so interesting when you read very often in the story of the children of God in the Old Testament, um, you would go from a place of being rescued to a place of giving praise to God followed quickly by grumbling. And in Exodus 15, which is an amazing, the entire chapter is praise to God for being delivered from Egypt in miraculous ways. And so there's these lines, because we actually sing this, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Who was them? Well, they were their physical pursuers. Still in the same chapter. When Moses led Israel from the Red Sea... And they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Some of your translations might say a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Chapter 16 of Exodus says this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community does not say they sang praises. It says they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, if you were to read the conditions of the people of Israel in Egypt, you would realize that their conditions were horrendous. 
But obviously at times they had lots to eat or enough to eat. The very next verse says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, such a sweet verse, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I will rain it down. And every morning, 40 years, food the people had never ever seen before rained down from heaven. It's interesting, in Hebrew, not that I know any Hebrew, the word for manna actually means, what is it? So that in the morning, when the people woke up and saw this, they said, what is it? I think that's an incredibly important part of this story. This was not food that sort of sprung up naturally from the earth. This food was actually divine food that came from heaven. And it is, I believe, a reference to Jesus. That when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's talking about this. In the same way that manna came down to sustain them physically, Jesus, who was born not of natural man, but from the heart of God, came to feed us spiritually every day. Manna speaks to Jesus. It's interesting, the people were to gather only what they needed. This is so against um, North American thinking. Those then, there were those even then who thought, you know what, it's probably wise for us to gather more than we need. So they were told, gather what you need for the day, that's it. And others said, well, you know, it'd probably be good for us to store it up. And so some did. And it's interesting, they found that everything they stored up that they didn't need went bad. In fact, it says they, it was crawling with maggots. You could not eat it. The other thing interesting in that story is that those who picked a lot for the day did not have more than they needed. And the, those who sort of picked only a little did not go wanting. So that in some way, everybody had exactly what they needed for that day. On Friday, if I have my days right, they were told to gather double the amount. It's another beautiful part of the story. And they were to put it aside for the Sabbath. So on Saturday, in the morning, don't go out and pick manna. But on Friday, pick twice. And you might think, well, it's going to go bad then on Saturday. But the manna they picked on Friday did not go bad. It's really about God saying, do you trust me? 
And on the Sabbath, what would they have done? They would have gathered, I believe, as a people of God and remembered the greatness, the goodness, and the provision of God. And on that day when they set aside to worship, to gather, to praise God, they also had all they needed physically. And I think there's maybe a spiritual lesson here that as we learn to truly worship God in spirit and in truth, we will increasingly learn to trust him in practice. Manna for breakfast for 40 years. You might ask, why didn't God occasionally change up the menu? Why not on some days say, you know what? We'll give you a treat. But he didn't. In the New Testament, when Jesus took the simple objects like loaves and fishes, loaves and fish, and he realized this crowd is hungry, they've, got, they've been traveling for a while, probably following me, and he takes the little that they have, but he does not change it into something else. He multiplies it into more loaves and more fishes. And I thought about that, and I thought, what do these things represent? Loaves and fish would have been kind of their daily diet. This is what they're used to eating, and Jesus realizes there's a lot of hungry people I need to feed them, and he gives them their basic diet. Would have wowed the crowd was something extravagant, but he didn't. He could have changed up the manna into something truly amazing. Not that it wasn't amazing, but he said it's going to be manna. And you might ask the question, why? And I think it is, and this is me thinking, that it is possible for the provision to become more important to us than the provider. That we would start saying wow at the food instead of saying wow towards Jesus. That the things we have blessed, been blessed with, and most of us here would say we've been blessed. Those things can become the objects of our attention. They can become the objects of our affection. And we forget the one who gave us the blessing in the first place. That miracles are meant to point us to the miracle worker. And not everybody gets that. I think even today there are those who clamor for the miraculous. That today there are those who constantly crave something, almost anything, supernatural. There are those who may still be waiting for an earthly blessing of some kind. And I would say that's because they have not truly found their contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone. Jesus says, seek after me. Seek after my kingdom, 
I will provide what you need. It is so true, though, I believe that at the heart of the gospel, there is this ongoing narrative of reward. I think about that. Paul especially spoke about the hope that lies ahead, running the race, persevering. Why? To lay hold of the prize that lies ahead for those who believe and trust in Jesus. It's interesting that those rewards seem to be extended to those who are willing to take up their cross, to deny themselves, to be willing to persevere in trials, to be willing to persevere in sickness and in health, to be willing to persevere in poverty or in wealth, that this reward that lies ahead, what it means to prosper, to lay hold of the hope, to lay hold of the future, is what Jesus offers us if we keep our eyes on him. Manna was a miracle from the hand of God. So was the feeding of the 5,000 a miracle from the hand of God. Both of them were provisions for daily bread. You need this to survive. But these miracles were meant to declare you can trust in God. You can put your trust in Jesus Christ who is to be our daily bread. The Old Testament so often in miraculous ways foreshadowed Jesus, that the manna was foreshadowing Jesus. And the New Testament welcomes him in person. When speaking with his disciples, on one occasion, uh, Jesus referenced the manna miracle of the Old Testament, which the disciples would have been very familiar with. It would have been a story they would have all known. And so I'm ending off this morning essentially reading some scripture that I think speaks to everything that I've talked about so far. And I just encourage you to let the word of God speak to you. And so here's the conversation Jesus with his disciples. Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs. That's quite an indictment. You want to be with me because, in a sense, it's like you want to see what I'll do next. What will I give you next? And he says, you don't understand the miraculous signs. You're missing me, he would say. But don't be so so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And they replied, 
we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Now, I don't know exactly what they meant by that, it, but it almost sounds to me like we would like to do miracles in the way you do, Jesus. And this answer that Jesus gave them, and I know I've read this before, but it quite literally jumped out at me as such an incredible statement. He says, Jesus told him, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in me, Jesus would say. And they said, well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? I, now, I don't know, sometimes chronology in the Bible is not easy to follow. It's not always chronologically, this follows this, follows this. But it would strike me that they would have already seen him do miraculous things. Yet they obviously weren't enough. And they said, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir or rabbi or teacher, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Later on in that same chapter, John chapter 6, and this is interesting. John 6, 49 to 51, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and what happened? In the end, they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh, it is my life. And we celebrate that every time we celebrate communion. I want to move from there to Matthew chapter 6, which is where the Lord's Prayer is found. And shortly after the Lord's Prayer, so if we think about give us this day our daily bread, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more 
valuable than they. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. I think about that every time I see a tropical bird. I think, oh my goodness, that is so incredibly beautiful the way God has clothed you. You might say without you working for it. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then I put, I chose to put secular world. I think the translation I was looking at used the word pagans. I think it's more appropriate for us to think about the world around us. For the secular world runs after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble of its own. In a way, it's an odd way to end. But to me, it there are people I know who are children of God who probably have gone hungry. There are times when wells run dry. There are times when crops fail. And there are times when people die because they haven't had their daily bread. And maybe that's why Jesus says, you know what? Continue to pray for your daily bread. Keep praying for those things that you need for this day. But when we pray that, I think God says, when especially to us in Canada, North America, when we pray it, help turn our eyes to those who truly may lack physical bread. In a way, allow us to be people of miracles to those who are in desperate need. And above all, turn our attention to the fact that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Jesus. The simplest elements of communion remind us that, yes, Jesus' physical body was broken. Yes, his blood was poured out. He gave his life for us. But today, because of that, we can partake daily of the bread of life. That will never run out. We can drink from a living waters that will never run dry. To make Jesus our daily bread. I think whoever decided to start that little book or that booklet and called it Daily Bread... So appropriate. No food, 
Open that book. It's not like bread appears. But the word of God appears. The voice of God appears. And it's almost like saying, no matter what else happens, God, I want to feed on your daily bread. I think about those things, and you know what? It makes the prosperity gospel sound so incredibly selfish and shallow. And it makes the good news of God our Father and Jesus our Savior sound so rich and satisfying. We have in the last uh, weeks ended with the Lord's Prayer, so I, I want us to do that again this morning. That truly God has blessed us with our daily bread for which we need to say thanks, for which we need to say, God, help me be generous. But for us, probably where we are and how we live and where we live, uh, we need to remind ourselves to feed on the daily bread that is Christ himself. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we'll, uh, uh, Sean and the worship band can I'll invite you to come forward. And um, let's pray this. Uh, as the children of God. So join me. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.